Good morning, friends. It's Candace Estes. I am with Autism One Media. My guest today is Dr. Stephanie Seneff. Stephanie, are you there? I'm there, yes. Oh, good. It indicates that you're not here. Okay. <laughs> oh, <laughs> so Dr. Seneff has a, a theory about this COVID-19 pandemic and how glyphosate may play a major role. So um, where do we start with this? Uh, yeah, it's very exciting, actually, and I feel really... Um I feel grateful for all the work I've done studying glyphosate up to this point because I feel like it just fits so perfectly with this epidemic. It's it's really beautiful science and, and terrifying, of course, as well. And I don't know if our listeners are already aware of the fact that I've zeroed in on a particular mechanism of to- toxicity of glyphosate that has to do with substituting for glycine during protein synthesis. That's an absolutely essential base assumption for everything that I'm saying, pretty much everything, because I think that's the mechanism by which glyphosate is causing uh, disruption of so many different biological systems in the body that the body is just really crippled by it after long-term exposure. So basically the glyphosate goes into our proteins and messes them up uh, systematically with accumulated damage over time, and depending upon how much glyphosate you're being exposed to, uh, your damage will be, you know, the degree of damage will be related to how much you're exposed to. So people who are exposed to a lot will get sicker sooner. And so let's tell our listeners, in case they don't know, where does glyphosate come from? Yeah, glyphosate is the active ingredient in Roundup, and Roundup is is the most used herbicide on the planet. It's considered perfectly safe for humans, and that's why it's so popular. It kills all plants except for those that have been engineered to resist it. And anything that kills all plants, you have to think it probably is pretty toxic. You know, it, plants have a lot in common with humans, and so it's pretty naive to think that it's it's innocent with respect to us. You know, that's what makes it so wonderful, and that's what allows people to use it rather carelessly. People use it on their lawns to control their dandelions. They can readily buy it at the local hardware store, so um, or the um, garden center. You know, whatever. It's very easy to get. Um, not regulated, and used extensively on our food supply, so it's showing up in all kinds of foods, uh, levels that the government is not concerned about because they consider it to be perfectly safe. So we're in a monstrous situation in which we're being chronically poisoned by a poison that we're not aware is poisonous, is basically what's happening. And the U.S. is being being hit harder than just about any other country because we are the most, um, we consume more glyphosate per person than any other country in the world. Well, let's start with Italy. Um, what is your theory about Italy and that uh, yeah, major Italy, outbreak there? Yeah, Italy is very interesting, and I've been reading about Lombardy in particular. Lombardy is, is in the northern region, and that area has been hit especially hard by the COVID-19 virus. And in fact, they have you know they, you can see videos of the hospitals being overwhelmed by people who are coming in with uh, pneumonia-like symptoms. Basically, the virus is quickly destroying their lung, lungs. They have they don't seem to have the capacity to resist the virus. This is the key property. I think this virus, I think there is a new virus. It is making its way around the world. It is very dangerous. I'm not denying any of that. But it's going to be selectively dangerous to the people who have had the most glyphosate exposure, particularly if they've had that exposure through the lungs by breathing, by breathing glyphosate. 
And so what you see there, for example, from China even, there were studies, there's a lot of preprint papers that are coming out that I've been reading, people analyzing uh, the cases in China that are being especially susceptible. And as you might guess, people who have lung problems are much more sensitive uh, to the virus. And so, for example, if you have COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you have an 18-fold increased risk of ending up in the ICU if you catch this virus. So it's those people who already have preconditions, and particularly preconditions related to the lungs, are going to be hit hard by the virus. And so the preconditions is a big list. In Lombardy, they did a study on the people who died, and they found that at a point in time, so there's more people have died since that study, but up to that point in time, they did a study of people who had died. They found, I think, the average age was 79. So most of the people who are dying are old. That's that's good news. The children are not dying. I think that's really, really good news. But secondly, those people who were dying had uh, comorbidities. They had a whole bunch of different chronic diseases um, that are going up in in, in uh prevalence exactly in step with the rise of, in glyphosate usage. This is something I talk about a lot, but I show a lot of plots of um, correlations between the rise in, for example, diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, high, high cholesterol, heart disease, various cancers, Alzheimer's. All these diseases are going up, autism, of course, which is the one I always talk about at Autism One, going up dramatically exactly in step with glyphosate usage. Because glyphosate is destroying proteins throughout your body that are then the Crippling, crippling of those proteins is causing the disease. And so in the case of lung disease, um, one place to go that's very, very interesting is to look at smoking. So another thing that um, the Chinese people have done is to look at statistics on smoking, and they found that smokers, people who smoke, uh, have a much higher risk of ending up in the ICU, same thing as people with COPD. And, of course, those are connected. Emphysema, of course, is something you get from too much smoking, and that also is a very strong risk factor for um, basically you end up with pneumonia, you can't breathe, you can have sepsis. I mean, these are the kinds of things that are killing people with this virus. And and the problem is, uh, number one, the innate immune system is, is impaired by glyphosate. So your innate immune system is not able to fight the virus off. The virus goes into the lungs, and then normally your lungs have this surfactant, you know, proteins. The surfactants are going to trap the virus, allow the macrophages to clear it and you'll just have a, a cold and then you'll just you know recover so that should be the normal p- procedure following an infection with one of these viruses but what happens is that these people who have been exposed to too much glyphosate um, have a very weakened innate immune system because of that and in particular their surfactant proteins are messed up this is what i think and this is causing them to not be able to fight the virus off so the virus multiplies profusely and then they end up uh, attacking it with a, what they call a cytokine storm. This is what we're seeing. When you look at the progress of the disease, you get this cytokine storm in the lungs, which is a, the immune cells are releasing all kinds of toxic molecules to try to kill the virus because they can't trap it because of the surfactant problem. So they try to kill it by, by spewing out these reactive oxygen species that then cause collateral damage to the lung tissues. And then you have this other problem that glyphosate causes, which is a uh, decrease in your antioxidant defenses. So studies have shown that glyphosate disrupts various proteins that are involved in uh, protecting you from oxidative damage. So on the one hand, your immune system is weak, so the virus flourishes. Now you release all these toxic molecules to try to kill it, and then you normally would be able to mop up these radicals that would, you know, 
these reactive oxygen species that would come out of these chemicals that you're using to kill the virus, you would be able to control their effect in your cells with these antioxidant defenses, which are busted by glyphosate also. So you can't do that, and then your lung tissue gets destroyed, and then you can't breathe anymore. This is sort of the process that's going on in these people who have been exposed to too much glyphosate. That's what I think, basically. Does that make sense? Well, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So you told me that tobacco and even the nicotine in, in the vape is full of glyphosate because it's yeah. a tobacco product and right. that's a GMO product. Exactly, and I can say more about that. In fact, there's, you know, you probably know about this whole scare about the e-cigarettes. It's very interesting, very interesting timing that that came out just in the past year or so. All this about the um, vaping, you know, vaping causing a really peculiar lung condition that people are dying from, you know, we've got, you've probably heard, have you heard about that? Yes, yes, yeah. the popcorn lung. Right, from people who are vaping, they're so surprised that the vaping, vapors are so toxic and they couldn't figure out what was going on. There's a really interesting uh, paper about mice. Uh, they did a, a very nice study where they specifically looked at the damage that was occurring in the lungs as a consequence of um, these vapors from the e-cigarettes that they exposed these mice to. And then in particular, they infected the mice with influenza virus, and they looked at their response compared to control mice that hadn't been exposed to these vapors. And they found, you know, the same thing that we're finding with coronavirus, that the, the mice couldn't fight off the infection. They released a cytokine storm, and they destroyed their lungs. And it was exactly that same process. It looked just like a, a COVID-19 you know, case uh, ending up in the ICU. It was a perfect match to that, really. But it's, of course, influenza rather than COVID-19. But basically, these mice are unable to protect themselves from a virus infection. And then they looked specifically at what was going on in the lungs, and they found two proteins in particular. This is what got me really, really excited, because they found these two proteins, which are called surfactant protein A, and surfactant protein D. And these are, of course, the major proteins that are in the surfactants of the lungs. And the surfactants are very important for trapping. These proteins are very important for trapping viruses. And so these proteins in particular are very interesting because they I um, <clears throat> was aware of this class of proteins that I was suspecting glyphosate would be disrupting. In fact, I've written a bunch of, about this in a chapter of a book that I'm working on and that I hope to get published someday. But um, in that chapter, I wrote about... Uh, several proteins in this class, um, very interesting. They're, they're produced by the immune cells, and some of these proteins are released into the blood circulation, and they go out and they find garbage, including viruses, and they bind to them, and then they bring them home to the macrophages so that they can clear them. Other ones will stick, like, for example, in the lung, they're sticking into the surfactants, and they're, again, binding the, the viruses as they come in, trapping them so they can be cleared. So when those proteins aren't working, those viruses aren't bound. The viruses get have a field day, and they can take off and start multiplying. And those proteins have the important thing, <laughs> this gets into the scientific detail of glyphosate substituting for glycine, because those proteins have a, a long sequence in them. It's probably a, you know, up to a third of the molecule that consists of GXY, GXY, GXY. Every third amino acid in the protein chain is a glycine residue. So they have huge amounts of glycines in this particular segment of the protein that could get substituted by glyphosate, and if they did, it would mess it up. The protein builds this beautiful uh, crystalline structure called a triple helix, uh, and that's part of how it builds this um, this segment of the protein that, that, that is really important for it to be able to function properly. 
And so um, it's been sh- it's clear that glyph- glycines that are in that pattern are essential for the formation of that crystal structure. So when you start throwing glyphosates into the mix, the protein won't fold correctly, and the body and the cell will simply uh, break it down. You know, it won't be able to use it. And so what they saw with this study on these mice it was they singled out those two proteins as being um, particularly um, suppressed in, in the presence of these vapors that were coming from these e-cigarettes that are uh, based on GMO Roundup-ready tobacco. So I think when you're smoking, I actually think smoking is toxic mostly because of all the toxic chemicals are, that are in the cigarette. And there's lots of, of, of toxic chemicals that are used in in growing tobacco. And I really wonder, you know, if if smoking would, if tobacco would even be toxic if it were organic. I don't know. I mean, I really think the the reason why smoking is hazardous for for your health is because of all the chemicals in the cigarettes, one of which is glyphosate, and it may be the most important one to be destroying your lungs by virtue of breathing glyphosate in and then poisoning those um, those proteins so that they can't work anymore and then disrupting the innate immune system. Now, you also have a concern about the biofuels. Yes, I do. Um, are, I'm, I'm, now, are we using biofuels in the U.S.? Well, we are actually, we are a leader, an uh, absolute leader, both in the production and the consumption of ethanol in our gasoline. We're one of the few countries that requires 10% ethanol in all of our gasoline in our cars, 10% ethanol. You may be aware of that. And that ethanol is derived from the residue of the crops, uh, the corn crops and the wheat crops, you know, you get the stalks after you've sort of harvested the crop. That residue is processed through a process that turns it into ethanol, and then that's fuel ethanol. The United States and Brazil are the two major suppliers of ethanol to uh, to augment, in order to sort of stretch the gasoline. It's supposed to be good for, you know, climate change, trying to reduce carbon emissions. It, it seems like it's an improvement to burn out ethanol rather than the normal gasoline, um, in the cars, and so it, it's a step, what would look like a step in the right direction, except that that ethanol is derived from crops that are heavily exposed to glyphosate. And so I think what's happening is we're getting glyphosate in the ethanol in the cars, and then we're burning that. Glyphosate does not break down at the temperature of, of the combustion of the car's engine, so we're basically spewing the glyphosate out into the air and breathing it. So it's kind of like smoking to be breathing the air in a heavily congested area where there's a lot of cars. And that's what we're seeing, too, with the places where we're having major breakouts. Like New York City, of course, has a lot of cars and trucks, and so it has a high air pollution problem. And that could be part of the reason why New York City is getting hit hard. Uh, L.A. is another one, of course, that's famous for its air pollution and also having a a bad case of COVID-19 reactions. So I think... You know, and of course, also Lombardy. Lombardy is known for air pollution problems in uh, Italy, where they've got the center of their epidemic is in an area that's known for air pollution problems. There's also a um, a bio, and I've just been learning about this the last few days, so I don't know as much as I should. But there's a besides the ethanol, there's a sort of bio version of the diesel engine, diesel fuel, and the Europeans, of course, have uh, they switched. They have introduced diesel fuel much earlier than we did, and they use it a lot more than we do, partly because they don't have as easy access to gasoline, so it's expensive. So they're trying to reduce the cost uh, to do a diesel, you know, diesel-based car. And we, of course, in the United States, we have some cars that run on diesel as well, but not nearly as many as they have in Europe. 
and in particular, uh, so I'm looking into, so there's this something called biodiesel, which is a, a version of diesel fuel that's, that's built from uh, crops, again, from food-based crops. <coughs> and that's quite interesting what they're doing. And again, um, uh, I guess it's Argentina, actually, who's providing, who provides a significant amount of exported um, biodiesel fuel that they produce from their soybeans, and their soybeans are GMO Roundup-ready soybeans. So that's also, it's the oil. They're pulling the oil out of the soil, soybeans and then turning it into this biodiesel fuel through a processing procedure. And so my suspicion is the biodiesel is also contaminated with glyphosate. The ethanol and the biodiesel should both be contaminated with glyphosate. Uh, in Italy, they've developed a technology that involves taking waste oil. This is quite fascinating. Again, I've just learned these things in the last few days. I've been madly reading all this stuff. In Italy, they have, they have of course, a lot of uh, olive trees. They, they produce a huge amount of olive oil. And then the olive oil is used in cooking at all the restaurants. And then they actually have a company that gathers up the waste olive oil from all these restaurants and processes it processes it into biodiesel and then puts you know they put that biodiesel into their tanks of their cars and trucks and so um so I don't know I mean I'm thinking that again nothing's been researched this is all speculation but it appears to me possible that both the ethanol and the biodiesel are contaminated with glyphosate and so we're getting increasingly toxic air pollution problems in our cities because of uh, this fact that absolutely would contribute to Death. It would be exactly the same as smoking the cigarettes. Anytime you're breathing glyphosate into your lungs, you're going to be in trouble with a direct hit on your lungs. And I should say, by the way, there was a study on cows that looked at glyphosate in the tissues. They looked at various sample tissues. And among the tissues that they sampled, they found the highest levels of glyphosate in the lungs. And so I think it may naturally accumulate in the lungs, even independent of the fact that you're breathing it. Like even if you're eating it, it can get into the lungs. So there's another concern about the vaccines, of course, and that's another area that I'm wondering about. I've always been against the flu shot. I've never gotten the flu shot myself. I never will unless somebody forces me to. And um, the flu shot, uh, Anthony Samsel and Zen Honeycutt both um, tested various vaccines for glyphosate, and both of them independently found glyphosate in several different vaccines, one of which was the flu vaccine. And so, um, again, I'm wondering whether the vaccines are setting you up uh, with glyphosate exposure. I mean, that's a very uh, harsh way to get glyphosate, to have it injected along with a vaccine where you're already, you know, exciting the immune system to react to the vaccine, and then you've got the glyphosate in there as well, which is going to put the immune system on fire, you know, when it sees this glyphosate, you know, combined with these antigens that are in the the vaccine. It's going to be a very good adjuvant, I think, to try to put the um, get the immune system to respond uh, and to produce the antibodies that you need. But there are studies that have shown, multiple studies have shown that the flu virus vaccine, the flu vaccine, actually increases your risk of catching other viruses, and in particular coronavirus. So there are studies that have shown that um, flu vaccine specifically immunizes you against the specific strains of the flu, not even, of course, there's many strains of the flu that aren't covered by the vaccine, which is why we always get these bad years in which it didn't work, basically. But there are studies that show that if you got the flu vaccine, you have an increased chance of catching coronavirus. And there's another virus called syncytial virus. I remember a study from Hong Kong 
that I've been quoting that showed a fourfold increased risk to syncytial virus for people who got a flu shot versus not in a controlled experiment in Hong Kong. Fourfold increased risk. Syncytial virus is another virus that causes basically flu-like symptoms. So I think that if you keep getting flu shots every year, every time you do that, you're decreasing your innate immune system's capability of fighting off everything that's not in that vaccine. So it's not a good plan to do that, you know. You immunize yourself temporarily against a small set of viruses and you open yourself up to all the other viruses for increased risk. Right, and it lowers your immunity to everything. Exactly. And so, so in Italy, it's interesting because there's a lot going on with the flu vaccine in Italy. Again, I've been reading about all this stuff in the last few days, so it's all new and, you know, it needs so to be worked out. But it's mandated that the Italian Italian people get their vaccines now. Is that right? I believe so, yes. I remember so, there was some fight about that recently, right, in Italy in particular. They only recently started mandating it, I believe, right, in the last few years? Yeah, it's been very recent. <clears throat> so I yeah. heard that a couple of days ago. I'm sure Del Bigtree has the skinny on that. That's very interesting, um, yeah. So the flu vaccine in Italy is interesting because they have developed a particular flu vaccine in Italy that they use, which is based on a um, squalene, squalene as an adjuvant. Have you heard about that? Yes, squalene. It's found in your joint tissues, um, Mm. squalene. Squalene, yeah. Squalene is a a natural um, fat or, you know, lipid, and um, it's it's found in a lot of different... um, plants and whatnot, and in fact, in Italy in particular, they get it from uh, the oil, the olive oil. So they turn the olive oil through a processing into squalene, and then they put that squalene into um, the vaccine, as adjuvant, like aluminum. It's, it sort of does the same thing that aluminum does. It makes the immune cells more upset when they see this, and they're more likely to produce antibodies, which is what they want you to do to get your protection. So they put the squalene into the vaccine, and and, and America doesn't use that many squalene-based vaccines, but the uh, Europeans have been quite, that's been quite a popular um, adjuvant. It's sort of like you're trying to get rid of the aluminum, so why not try something that might be not as bad as the aluminum? The aluminum, of course, is terrible. So, you know, squalene, it turns out, is bad, too. In fact, I'm aware of H1N1 vaccine in Europe causing narcolepsy. I don't know if you heard about that, but this was a few years back when they had the H1N1 scare. The Europeans got this H1N1 vaccine, and then they discovered this uh, increase uh, in narcolepsy that was very highly correlated with the vaccine, and they finally traced it to the squalene. That's a whole story that's available on the web, um, that the squalene caused the narcolepsy in the case of these H1N1 vaccines. So they've got squalene now in the in flu vaccine, and the squalene is derived from the olive trees. And the Europeans are very good about not using GMOs. However, they do use glyphosate pretty routinely, as far as I can figure out, to control the weeds growing around the olive tree plants. So there's probably glyphosate in the olive oil, and there's probably, possibly, glyphosate in the squalene. I mean, again, we don't know. I mean, we need to be looking and Research needs to be done. These are just all hypothetical ideas that I have, you know. But that could be uh, a connection, too. And then on top of that, there's a brand-new vaccine that was introduced in Italy that's based on chicken eggs. Um, and that, it has, like, four different um, antigens for the different different strains of flu. So it's sort of a super flu vaccine that they were advertising would be appropriate for the people over 60 or over 65, the elderly. 
and they introduced this last year, this chick embryo-based whole cell flu vaccine with these four antigens. And so, again, I wonder about that one because chick eggs, I mean, eggs have certainly been seen to have glyphosate contamination in them. And so, again, you could imagine that it's in the vaccine as well. So I think all these vaccines that are based on products that are derived from, you know, plants that are exposed to glyphosate, you've always got the chance of the glyphosate being in the vaccine. And when you inject glyphosate into your body, I mean, that is really a horrendous way to get the glyphosate, along with, of course, everything else that's in the vaccine all at the same time. Now, a few months ago, I had interviewed you on uh, the pathology of uh, chlorine dioxide Mm -hmm. and how it might help children with autism, because we know that uh, Carrie Rivera's protocol has Absolutely. has recovered 800 children. Yeah. So can you Beautiful. tell us how we can clear glyphosate from our bodies? Right. Well, I think chlorine dioxide is an excellent idea for that. I think it may be one of the mechanisms by which it's helping these autistic kids because um, it's been the glyphosate's a pretty tough molecule and, and lots of Lots of uh, species, even bacteria, don't even know how to break it down. You know, it's, even enzymatically, it's hard to break it down. But it is sensitive to oxidation damage from highly reactive uh, molecules, and chlorine dioxide produces hypochlorite, which is able to um, break down glyphosate non-enzymatically. In fact, chlorine, so chlorine is what's used very commonly in the water supply. You know, we go through the water purification plants in our uh, in our water supply, and they uh, they typically use chlorine um, to kill the, the the bacteria, you know, to keep the water safe. And it's very fortunate, in my opinion, that they use chlorine because chlorine is has been shown to be very good at breaking down glyphosate non-enzymatically. So I think they haven't. Um, we don't have nearly as big a problem with glyphosate in our water supply as we would have if we had not been very conscientious about using chlorine to kill the bacteria. It was a side benefit that we got from that to keep the glyphosate out of our water supply. So I think people who are getting their water from their own personal wells and they live in an area where glyphosate is being heavily used on the surrounding crops, I think they're in very serious trouble with the potential for having glyphosate in their water if they're not doing something to treat it, you know, if they're just drinking the the well water. I think that's a big concern. But um, chlorine, so chlorine dioxide is... Chlorine dioxide is much, much safer than chlorine. You know, there's all this concern about the safety of chlorine dioxide, and, of course, the uh, American Medical Society is going crazy over the idea that this is a horrible poisoning that Carrie's doing and she should be. You know, they're very, very upset with her, which is really too bad because she's she's her her she's the only person I know who has been able to reverse that many autism cases, completely reverse them. And I have seen her interview had autism and she's had conversations with them and they seem perfectly normal. So she's she's showing the, the results of her labors on the web with her interviews with these people. I think she's fantastic. And she's got a really good protocol and it's not just chlorine dioxide, but she claims that that's the essential ingredient of her protocol. She has told me that some of her patients refuse to use it because they hear all this stuff about it being so dangerous. And those patients never get uh, a full recovery from the autism, from everything else that she treats them with. So the chlorine dioxide is almost magical in that respect. And I think it has to do with, number one, being able to destroy the glyphosate. But also, number two, chlorine dioxide is quite interesting because it preferentially oxidizes sulfur. And so it will oxidize the sulfur in proteins 
and um, oxidize uh, sulfur to um, basically to be assisting in the production of sulfate is what I'm thinking, uh, potentially from taurine. So I did a whole paper, actually, long before I knew about chlorine dioxide. I did a paper on taurine and the brain and autism in which I proposed. So the, the immune cells actually release hypochlorite. They do that in response to an infection. So they're actually, uh, again, it's, it's antimicrobial, so they're trying to kill the bugs. And that's another thing that may be a benefit that is helping to kill the pathogens in the gut. It's killing the pathogens, it's killing the glyphosate, and it's oxidizing the sulfur, which is helping to produce sulfate, which I find is absolutely critically deficient in autism. So all of that makes sense to me as far as chlorine dioxide being beneficial for autistic kids. And then... <laughs> So the taurine is very interesting because taurine actually takes a hit on hypochlorite to get converted into taurine chloramine. And there's a belief that taurine serves a an antioxidant role in that capacity to be able to detox hypochlorite because hypochlorite kills bacteria. It is reactive. That's the concern that the medical people have. But if you have taurine, your your, your cells produce the taurine that detoxes the hypochlorite and furthermore, in doing so, it becomes prepared to become sulfate. So it's actually kind of a beautiful system where you kill the microbe with the hypochlorite and then you turn around and use it to oxidize the taurine to produce the sulfate that you critically need. So it's solving both of those critical problems, getting rid of the bacteria and producing the sulfate that is essential for the health of the autistic child. My dogs are barking, so I'm muted. Oh. <laughs> so... Uh, Let's see. So um, that's well, very this, interesting. There is this chloro, what is it called, chloro something or other that's being pr promoted as a drug to treat, a uh, malaria, anti-malaria drug, uh, chloroquine, mm -hmm. right? Chloroquine. Chloroquine, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, that was my initial question. How far away is chlorine dioxide from this chloroquine yeah. um, molecularly or you know. Right, so chlorine dioxide is a very, very simple molecule. It's kind of like oxygen, actually, ClO2. It's just got three uh, atoms in it, chlorine and two oxygens. So it's providing both chloride and oxygen, both of which are probably very important nutrients for the um, for the cells, you know. And it's providing them in a capacity where it can react so it can do interesting things with respect to metabolism, um, as well as being able to be toxic to the to the pathogens to help to clear the pathogens. Um, chloroquine. chloroquine is, I believe it's a synthetic molecule, and I hate synthetic molecules. I have no trust for them. I think um, most of the medicines that, you know, all these patented medicines are dangerous because they're not natural. And, and so chloroquine, as I understand it, and again, all this is new to me, so I hope I'm not saying something incorrect, but chloroquine is a synthetic molecule. And it's a drug, and it has a lot of side effects, and it can even kill you. I mean, it has side effects that are so bad they can kill you. Chlorine dioxide, by the way, has very few side effects. I mean, Kerry provides it in small doses all day long. And anything, you know, oxygen is toxic, too. If you get too much oxygen, you can die, yet oxygen is essential for life. And in a way, chlorine dioxide is a bit like oxygen, very, um, very useful for metabolism. Um, but it could be toxic if you get too much. You know, it's just everything has that. Everything that reacts has the potential to react too much. If you get too much of it all at once and you can't, uh, your, your defenses against it are not in place. You know, so that's the whole tricky thing about all these molecules. But chlorine dioxide is a 
in my opinion, a very innocent molecule compared to these various drugs that they're producing that have really um, very bizarre effects that can have really nasty side effects. Um, I, I did a study where I compared chlorine dioxide to some of the, there were two drugs, you may know what they are, and I may have forgotten at, since it's been a while, but I did a study where I looked at the side effects uh, from the FDA's reporting system for a couple of drugs that were, uh, they are the only two drugs that have been approved to treat autism symptoms in in the brain. Basically, they're um, they're like anti, um, um, not antidepressants, but anti, uh, what's the other one? <laughs> Anti-inflammatory, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, shoot, I'm not doing well here. But anyway, there's these two drugs that are allowed uh, to help treat um, behavioral problems in autism, and they have an incredible list of side effects. I did a study on um, the FDA's database just for one year. I think it was 2018. I took that whole year of data, and I um, and I looked at the side effects coming out of these two drugs that were, um, damn it all, I can't, excuse my language, I can't remember the name. Uh, antipsychotics, sorry, antipsychotic drugs. Yes, that's what it was that I was trying to come up with. Two antipsychotics um, being prescribed for autistic kids in large amounts, actually. And and then these antipsychotics caused thousands, tens of thousands of reactions in one year. There were huge numbers of reports, including very, including death. I mean, very, very serious um, side effects for these two drugs that are being very commonly prescribed for autistic kids. And whereas the chlorine dioxide over the entire year, it was never the primary drug. I think it was mentioned just a few times as something else the person was taking. You know, something another drug was considered to be the primary drug that was causing the major effect of the side effects being reported in that event. And it was just kind of, a, oh, by the way, they're also taking chlorine dioxide. So in other words, there was a vast, vast difference between the toxicity of these two drugs that are being very over-prescribed for autistic kids and this chlorine dioxide in the FDA reports. It just shows you that they're being wildly exaggerating the the toxicity of chlorine dioxide and downplaying its benefits, you know, in, in the medical people are doing that because it's very it cheap. Seems, yeah, it seems like nobody's real, really concerned about autism at this point, and um, that really upsets me. You know, they're so concerned about this pandemic, but we have our own pandemic. I know. I totally agree. I don't understand how we can just be ignoring this autism epidemic because it's going to really do us in, I feel. I'm concerned that this next generation or the one after it are going to pretty much decide, you know what, I'm just not going to have kids because they're going to look at the odds and they're, not, and they're going to be frightened if, of it. If they'll be able to with you know, um, I know they may not be able to because it's also ruining our reproductive capacity, and that's exactly experiment yeah. as well. Even that exposure during uh, pregnancy can affect the third generation. You know, it, it gets it affects the um, reproductive cells of the fetus, and then that shows up in the in the fetus's grandchildren. You know, I mean, it's pretty amazing how it passes yeah. on down through multiple generations, and even um, just the Wi-Fi. In talking to Dr. Judy, you know, the male and female abortive fetal tissue and sterility. And um, so, you know, if we'll be able to see a baby in two years, it might be a miracle. Yeah, I know. It's really frightening, isn't it? And you see a tremendous drop in um, 
in the number of pregnancy. I don't know if you know about this statistics. It's sort of a re- almost record low pregnancy among teenagers. Last yeah, year. yeah. You know, they're not having babies. So, well, why is that? <laughs> you know, uh, you can say it's not good to have a baby too young, but it's quite disturbing when you start to see tremendous uh, implosion in the number of people who are having babies. Unless everybody's gay. I don't know. <laughs> that's <laughs> that another thing. That the drugs are, I mean, the toxic chemicals are probably causing that too. So, Well, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm going to send everybody to CarrieRiviera.com. Good. And you yes. can uh, talk to her. And Dr. Stephanie Sineff, um, she's an MIT scientist. I failed to mention that in the beginning of our our interview. And um, so where can we find some of your work, your studies that you've right. done? Yeah, I have a lot of stuff on my webpage at MIT. Um, that's um, <clears throat> people, P-E-O-P-L-E dot C-S-A-I-L, C-S-A-I-L. That's Computer Science and Artificial Intelligence Laboratory dot M-I-T dot E-D-U slash Senef, S-E-N-E-F-F, my last name. If you can, can you repeat my that? People, P-E-O-P-L-E dot C-S-A-I-L, C-S-A-I-L dot M-I-T dot E-D-U slash Senef, S-E-N-E-F-F. If you can remember my last name, Senef, S-E-N-E-F-F, you can Google that and you'll get all kinds of stuff with various podcast interviews and video interviews and presentations and papers and whatnot. So you can find a lot of stuff if you just Google my last name. And are you going to be at Autism One this year? I hope so. Is it going to happen? (laughs) Well, so far we are on. Okay. uh, So it's going to be quite an event. Um, uh, I, I can't really wait to see you there. It will be amazing if we sort of just barely open up at that point and everyone will be coming out from, of the closet, <laughs> right? Yeah. It'll be nice to get out of the house and uh, not have to do uh, schoolwork all day. Yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. That will be an amazing meeting, and I really appreciate all the effort you guys have put into this meeting year after year. It's really a wonderful experience for me to go. I really, I always learn a lot when I go to the meetings, and so um, I think they're great. Well, I'm so pleased. I'm so pleased that you like being there, and I, I'm very thankful that you have given up part of your day to talk to to me and our audience. And um, so My thank pleasure. you so much for your insight. Thank you. And uh, have a great day then. You too. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye.